take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 22. The opportunity to put first things first. Jesus in, in Matthew 22 beginning in verse 34. Notice, notice what it says here. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. And boy they were happy about that. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees competed with one another. They were tickled to death when they heard that he had put the Sadducees in their place. It says, they gathered themselves together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Lord, you promised that you would be our teacher. That you would illuminate your word to our minds and show us things that we need to know and practice. We humbly ask you to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dr. Mark Dever is the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And Dr. Dever is a very prolific writer and speaker today. And he's, he's currently... An individual who, who speaks powerfully to this new generation of pastors and church leaders. If you're ever looking for good Christian books to read, I would highly recommend many of Dr. Dever's books. In fact, I would commend just about anything that he writes. Uh, young Christians are flocking to him like crazy today, which may be a bit surprising because of what I'm about to say concerning his preaching. I, I warn you against listening to him if, if you think I preach long. <laughs> Dr. Dever describes himself as a modern-day Puritan and believes one of the marks against the American church today is its lack of appetite for long and deep sermons that are filled with lots and lots of theology. Sadly, we want more of the drive-through dollar menu from McDonald's type preaching and too many so-called preachers who are willing to dish that up. Now, ultimately, that is probably a reason why Christianity is going out the door in America and fading. And once the American church wakes up to it, it may be too late. So you may want to read his books, but again, stay away from his sermons if you don't like depth and content and length. That's probably another reason he's one of my favorites. Quite a number of years ago, he wrote a book entitled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Now listen to this list of nine marks. Number one, expository preaching. Number two, biblical theology. 
Number three, a biblical understanding of the good news. Number four, a biblical understanding of evangelism. Number six, a biblical understanding of church membership. Number seven, biblical church discipline. Number eight, promotion of church discipleship and growth. And ninth, biblical understanding of leadership. Now folks, when it comes to lists like that, it seems like you can find lists everywhere. Usually, unfortunately, our lists tend to be filled with shallow humanistic pragmatism. Here are ten ways to do this. Three things here that lead to financial freedom. Four qualities of a successful leader. Seven steps towards a sizzling marriage. On and on I could go with that. Lists are everywhere. Now I'm not criticizing lists, mind you. In fact, I highly recommend Dr. Dever's list of the nine marks of a healthy church. My point is, though, that everybody is looking for a list. It's like the mentality is, if I can only do X, Y, and Z, then, hey, I'm home free. I've got it all down. Everybody's looking for a list. And it was the same way in Jesus' day. Now, if you were to go back and study our passage this morning in context, you would see that it falls within the context of a chapter of controversy. The religious leaders have been confronting Jesus with a number of different scenarios, asking him what he would do given that scenario. The first is, they say, do we need to pay tribute to Caesar? They're trying to trap him, and so they could go to the Roman authorities and say, this guy is recommending that we don't pay our taxes and get him in trouble with the government. Jesus said, let me see a coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar's image is on it. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So they messed up. They didn't succeed in their trap. Secondly, they come to him and they present this scenario where this lady has married this guy. And, and according to Leverett marriage, if he died and there were no children, his brother had to marry her to raise up children. He says, here, uh, they say, here's a guy that has had, uh, here's a woman rather, that has had seven different husbands. So in the resurrection, in the afterlife, Whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus said, you don't understand about resurrection. And then finally they come to him on this occasion and they're saying, Master, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the one commandment that we really need to pay the most close attention to? There were endless debates over this last one. When you look at the Mosaic law, you begin with the Ten Commandments, but the laws of God don't stop there. There are 613 commandments that build off of the original ten, 248 that are positive and 365 that are negative. David in Psalm 15 took those 613 commandments and narrowed them down to 11. 
Isaiah took those 11 and in Isaiah 33 narrowed them down to 6. Micah took those 6 and narrowed them down to 3. Habakkuk took 3 and said, here it is, the just shall live by faith. So everybody wanted to know, what are we supposed to be doing? What is the highest priority in the commandments? Complicating this even more was the fact that the Pharisees and lawyers of Jesus' day wrote commentaries other than God's laws and elevated their commentaries to the standing equal with God's laws. By adding all their layers upon layers of traditions to God's laws, they made the laws of God a burden. It was almost impossible for somebody to try to live by all the laws and traditions that the Pharisees had added. And and so this lawyer steps up and he asks Jesus this question. Again, this was typical. The lawyers back then were always arguing what is the most important thing. You may recall on one occasion how Jesus said, You tithe, mint and dill and cumin, but neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faith. I want you to notice what Jesus does here. He enters into this discussion. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't sidestep it. He enters right in to the matter of it. And he speaks to the most important issue of life. Now folks, I want you to get this down this morning. Don't miss what's going on this morning. Jesus speaks to the most important matter of life. Jesus tells you and me what is primary. That's a whole lot better than E.F. Hutton speaking, isn't it? Now, some of the younger ones in the congregation won't understand that. You'll have to explain E.F. Hutton to them. The message this morning is more important than your New Year's resolutions. The message this morning is even more important than your family. Jesus said you even have to be willing to hate your family to follow him if that's what it takes. And for some people in the world this morning, that is exactly what it's taking. This message is more important than your raise or your promotion this year. Jesus' answer to the most important thing in your life is that you need to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the highest duty of man. The highest duty of man is to make sure in the vertical relationship with God, he's loving God passionately with his whole being. And in the horizontal relationship, the other, the other human relationships that he has, that he's loving his neighbor, doing to his neighbor what he would want somebody to do to him. Now let's see how all that plays out. First of all this morning, I want you to see with me that Christians today need to reclaim a proper focus. Christians today need to reclaim a proper focus. In verse 37, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. 
What Jesus is doing here is quoting out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, there is a passage known as the Shema. It occurs in verses 4 through 9, and it reads this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The Shema. And Orthodox Jews quoted that twice every single day. They still do. And they would take little pieces of parchment. And they would write the Shema on these little pieces of paper and they would roll them up and they would put them inside of little boxes called phylacteries and they would tie though, they would put it on their forehead and they would tie it around their head so that the law of God was right there at their mind. Or they would put it on their left hand and they would wrap it with leather straps. Again, they still do that today. Something else they do, they take those little parchments with the Shema on it and God's laws on it and they put it in mezuzahs, little boxes that they put on their door frames leading into their home. When Connie and I were in Israel and we were staying at the hotel out by the Dead Sea, I noticed as soon as we got to our hotel and we were unlocking the door to go in, there on the doorpost was a mezuzah and inside, if I were to have opened it, would have been God's laws and specifically the Shema. So every Jew would have known exactly what Jesus was saying here. The importance of the Shema wouldn't have been questioned by anyone. Well, let's break it down a bit. Let's start with love. The word here is agape, not phileo love, which is good. That's friendship love, but it's not as great as agape love. Agape love is a sacrificial, self-giving love. We are to love God with an agape love, a self-giving and self-sacrificing type of love. One writer with biting sarcasm has tried to capture the way too many Christians are today with their love of God. The exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He's written a little poem, says, I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a brown paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Isn't that the way too many are? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
That's not agape love. So many people just want to dip their toe in love and they want a love of God that is not going to cost them anything. They want to love God in a way to where they will never ever be inconvenienced in their lives. But what Jesus is talking about here is a love that involves living a God-centered life. Oswald Chambers wrote, The surest sign that God has done a work of grace in my heart is that I love Jesus Christ best, not weakly or faintly, not simply intellectually, but passionately, personally, and devotedly, overwhelming every other love of my life. Folks, God deserves our highest praise and our highest love. You know, that's what stands out about all the great Bible characters, doesn't it? They put God first. They loved him with their whole being. That's the kind of love that it took uh, Abraham doing what Abraham did. When God called him to leave his his father's family and land and go to a a new land that God was going to show him and build a new nation through him, it took that type of all-consuming love of God for Abraham to be willing to do something like that. How about Daniel, a young teenager who was carried away to Babylon in exile for 70 years. And in Babylon, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. That took agape love of God, didn't it? How about Esther? Going before the king when it could have cost her her very life because she had not been summonsed. That took an all-consuming love, didn't it? What motivated all of the great Bible characters? Love of God. Agape love. An all-consuming, passionate love, no doubt. Now I want you to notice also that on top of saying agape love, that Jesus divided up our life. Not to limit us, but rather to expand this love. He said, love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Now, we divide up life in categories to limit. For example, we say, I'll love you right now with my head because I know that's what I'm supposed to do, but I can't love you with my heart. And so we divide up man's personality in order to limit. Jesus did just the opposite. He divided up here in order to expand Jesus is emphasizing that we are to love God with the totality of our being and essence. He says here we're to love God with our heart. We could say this refers to the emotions. Emotions aren't bad in and of themselves. Somebody comes into church and says, you know what? We need to always be quiet and stoic. Well, that's okay if that's how you worship. Other people come in and they shout and cry and say amen and hallelujah. That's how they worship. Their emotions are touched. Folks, we are to love God with our emotions. We are to have a warm heart toward God. We're not to have a cold, dead orthodoxy. We're to have a passionate love to God in our heart. 
Then he says, love God with all your soul. This is the spiritual side of life. You and I are to feed our spirit. We're not just flesh and and bone and blood. The world approaches life as if life were just flesh and bone. And when we die, we die. But that's not the biblical image at all. In Genesis 2, we're told that God breathed into the man his breath. And the man became a living soul. Man's got a soul. 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You're not just a body. You've got a soul. And your soul is going to live somewhere for all of eternity. You're to love God with an agape love with all of your soul. Not just all of your heart, but also all of your soul. And then he says here, you're to love God with all your mind. That's the intellect. How are you doing at growing in your knowledge of God and in spiritual matters? Folks, a sad indictment of the modern day church that many people are talking about these days is how Christians are no longer feeding their minds. People are no longer reading and it shows. Christians in the past devoured Large volumes of theology. They devoured the Christian classics. Never before have we had so many good resources today to help us grow in our understanding of the Christian faith. But sadly, we're not utilizing those. Christians today are still living in the light of the intellectual accomplishments of those who have gone before. And we're not doing well at at producing the next generation of thinkers. Sadly today, people just want to feel. I just want to feel good. I want to come to church. I don't want to have to think. I just want to feel good. Give me a pep rally sermon. Give me a pep rally service. Give me pep rally music. I don't want to have to think about anything. Just make me feel good. But we need to be warned because Jeremiah said, remember, that the heart can be easily deceived. Emotions have to be grounded in the truth. Otherwise, emotions can go down a dangerous path. Jesus said we're to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind. Every single part of your life and my life is to be an offering to the praise and the glory of God. Will you and I love God that way in 2017? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. How do you do that? How does a Christian grow in their love of God? Now, I'm going to talk about the lost man in a moment. But first, how does the Christian grow in his or her love of God? I think it involves several obvious things. First of all, reading his word. How are you going to love God if you don't know him? Folks, one of the surest signs of true biblical conversion is that Christians have, true Christians have a love of God's Word. That is one of the signs of the new birth. God puts within you that love of His Word. Jesus loved God's Word. 
In his high priestly prayer for you in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Again, a love for God's word is one of the indicators of genuine conversion. The world hates the word of God. Satan hates the word of God. But God's children love the word of God. And of course true love is seen in the fact that we're not merely hearers of God's word. But also doers of his word. I want you to think about something. God has revealed himself in his word. In his word you meet the God who actually is not the God you've made up in your own mind. Did you get that? In the Bible, you meet the God who is, not the God somebody has imagined. So many people have a God made up in their thinking of who they believe He is, but in the Bible, we meet the God who actually is. And we see how He works in and through the lives of His people. Loving God requires loving His Word. I want to challenge you right away this year to order you a good study Bible if you don't have one. Never before have so many of them been on the market. Get you one. Get you one that has good notes that can help you understand different passages. A good study Bible that gives you a good overview. A good study Bible that ties themes uh, together. Get you one. ESV study Bible is excellent. One of the best on the market today. In fact, at the back of it, you have a lot of articles and you have a little miniature course in theology. Great study Bible. The new one out by Zondervan, the NIV, uh, that D.A. Carson edits. One of the best Bibles available today if you want to see how all the, the grand themes of the Bible tie together. And that Bible is packed with graphics. Man, you're reading that Bible and you'd think you're standing right there in the Holy Land. Awesome graphics and charts in it. That's just two examples. Get one. Get on a schedule of reading your Bible through this year. Hide God's Word in your heart and in your mind. A twin to Bible study is prayer. Bible reading and prayer are twin disciplines in the Scripture. Bible reading comes first and foremost because in Bible reading we are hearing God speak. And God speaking is more important than us speaking. So in Bible reading we're hearing God speak. But then we speak back to God in prayer. And we pray according to God's word. And so it's Bible reading that gives prayer direction. And prayer that gives Bible reading heat. Heat. So we have light and heat in Bible reading and prayer. Both Bible reading and prayer are indicators of love for God. Another indicator, another way to love God is being about His business. How are you and I going to love God if we are not joining God in His mission? 
I think of that young man who ran up to General George Washington and said, I appreciate everything you're doing. I appreciate everything you're about. And George Washington asked him, what regiment do you serve in, son? And he said, oh, I don't serve in one of your regiments. I just want you to know I appreciate what you're doing. He said, young man, if you really appreciate what I'm doing, then go trade in your civilian clothes and get a uniform and come and fight with me. We need to join God in his mission. If we claim to love him, then we need to love what he loves. We need to be about his business. Another way to love God. Love for God means that you love his bride. The church is his bride. He loves his bride. Hebrews 10 says we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. But we're to meet together and provoke one another. We're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And all the more as we see the day approaching. You've got a spiritual gift. If you're a child of God, you've got a spiritual gift that God's given you for the good of this body. To build this body up. And if you're going to love God, you need to be a part of his bride. You need to love his bride. There are people today who say they love God, but they don't love his church. It doesn't work that way. We love his bride, warts and all. Too many are looking for a perfect church to love. Guess what? You're not going to find that until you see Jesus. And also, as somebody has said, if you find the perfect church, this side of heaven, don't join it because you're going to mess it up. Loving God affects your language. Does your language reflect the love of God? James says with the tongue we bless and honor God and then we turn right around and we curse men who are made in God's image. And James is saying that doesn't even make sense. It's like fresh water and salt water is coming out of the same mouth and that doesn't happen. Love God with your language. Are you a gossip? Do you run people down? Are you critical of people? Whoever you're critical of, won't you spend that time or more praying for them? So loving God means meeting Him in His Word and in prayer, joining Him in His mission, serving His body, and reflecting His glory in our speech and in our attitudes. Now here's another thought about this. What about the lost man? Because people all over the world, some who even reject Jesus Christ, say that they love God. And I'm here to say to you this morning, you can't love God apart from Christ and the redemption he gives you. People today don't mind talking about God in heaven, but for so many people, Jesus is offensive to to them. But folks, Jesus is the only way to God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the one who reconciles you to God and makes you a child of God. You see, the Bible says, regardless of how somebody feels about it or not, the Bible says somebody apart from Christ is at enmity with God. They are separated from God. They are estranged from God. 
They're not God's children. They're not God's friend. Abraham was called God's friend. They're not God's friend because they're not reconciled to God. There's this relationship of hostility and enmity. You say, oh, I don't feel like that, but that's what the Bible says a lost man's condition is. God says you are in a state of hostility against him. But Jesus bore your sins on the cross and died for you that you can truly love God. For some of you to love God in 2017, you're going to have to take that first step of coming to Christ. I think that's what Jesus had in mind in Mark's version of this same story. If we were to take time to turn over to Mark's version of this same story, Mark tells us that when Jesus and this lawyer got done, this lawyer said to Jesus, you've answered well. Of course he's answered well. He's the Lord of glory. But you've answered well. You're right. And you know what Jesus said to him? Jesus said, son, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't say you're in the kingdom because he wasn't. Because he was a part of the Pharisees who were rejecting Christ. They thought they loved God, but they didn't because they were rejecting Christ. But Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. I think what Jesus was pointing out that apart from him, this lawyer and no one else for that matter can truly love God. So what's the number one priority for your life, for my life, for this church this year? Number one priority. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Can we, can we read that together this morning? Read out loud. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Okay, if that's what Jesus says, let me ask you a question. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Okay. Secondly, let's move on be quick about this. Christians today need to reassert a proper love. Christians today need to reassert a proper love. That's the second thing I want you to see this morning from verse 39. I'll ask the guys upstairs to change the screen over to number two. Number two, Christians today need to reassert a proper love. Jesus said, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Folks, if I truly love God with all of my mind, heart, and soul, guess what? I'm also going to love the world. Now, not the world in the sense of the world system. In fact, 1 John 2.15 tells us we're not to love that world, but we are to love the world in the sense of people. We love people as we love ourselves. And I think what Leviticus 19.18 assumes is that we do in fact love ourselves. I think God has put a certain amount of self-preservation and love in each one of ourselves. We tend to ourselves. We bathe. At least I hope you do. 
We eat. We exercise. We sleep when we're tired. We make decisions based on how those decisions will affect us. We protect our life. So there is a certain amount of self-love. Now, the fall of man in Genesis 3 corrupted that. It goes beyond respecting the life that God has given us and honoring, uh, honoring God with, with this life. It's become a self-absorbing type of love for itself that's very selfish and ungodly. That's what's happened with self-love since the fall. But that aside, Jesus says you need to love others the way you already love yourself. Don't let yourself be the object of your affections. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, folks, that brings up an interesting question, doesn't it? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because the Jew, you know what the Jew would have said? The Jew listening to this would have thought, my neighbor is that man or woman who looks just like me and is a fellow Jew. And so Jesus in Luke 10 told a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, to shoot that attitude out of the water. He told a parable about a guy who was beaten up and robbed and left for dead and that this Good Samaritan came along and bandaged him up and took him to this inn and had him cared for and told the innkeeper, whatever I owe you, make a record of that and I'll pay you when I get back. Just help me take care of this fella. Jesus said, who was the neighbor to that? guy and they had to answer the Samaritan who's your neighbor is it just the person who lives beside you or on your street or in your neighborhood is it just the person who's sitting on the pew this morning next to you no your neighbor is anybody anybody who needs you that's your neighbor that's your neighbor I want to ask you to think about something. God will bring people into your life who need you if you will only have eyes to see it. God will be bring people into this church who need us if we only have eyes to see it. Now, can I ask you this morning to help me with something? I've debated saying this publicly. I really have. I've mentioned it to the deacons. I've mentioned it to others. People have said, Pastor, the church family needs to know. They don't know they're doing it. We need to fix this. I think you would want me to mention this because I believe you would want to know because I know your heart in this matter. I think it is an honest human nature accidental oversight. I really do. But now before I tell you what it is, let me commend you for being a friendly church that reaches out to people. You really do, and I know that you do. Again, I know your heart. It never ceases to amaze me the way you reach out to people. I'll never forget a number of years ago, probably eight or ten years ago, there was a family in our church who even needed a new home. And you went so far as to provide them with a new home. Boy, now that's what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? 
If you want a church where you can have friends and relationships, this is the church for you. I can tell you that right now, okay? This is the church for you. You want friends galore, you'll find them here. Now, obviously, you got to be a friend. The Pro- book of Proverbs says to have friends, you got to be a friend, so you you got you to do that. But here's what I want to mention to you. While we are friendly with one another, we don't always see people. We don't. I know you don't mean to. I don't mean to. But sometimes we don't. We don't see people. We can't have the opportunity to love our neighbor as ourselves corporately as a body of believers if we shut doors right off the bat. I've been in far too many homes recently. Homes galore. I would never say this if it were only one or two or three different occasions because if it were only a few occasions, what I'm about to say, it would be like trying to kill a fly with a sledgehammer. It would be overkill. But I have heard time and time and time and time and time again Pastor, I visited your church Sunday, and from the time I came in to the time I left, not one person spoke to me. Nobody. Been in countless other homes where people say, Pastor, friendliest church I've ever visited. I thought they were just giving excuses, so I started started paying attention to something. I went into staff one day, and I told them what, what was going on. I said, watch what we do. Jonathan came back the next week. He said, I couldn't believe it. You're exactly right. We'll visit all around somebody that we don't know in a family. We'll visit with our friends. Beside them, behind them, in front of them, all around them. And we won't speak to them. I've stood and watched Somebody new in church we don't recognize and people are, we're visiting with one another all around them and nobody ever speaks to them. Again, I know your heart. I I know what you're like. You, I can promise you, you don't mean to do that. But we do sometimes. We do. Some of it's just human nature. We, we tend to gravitate to the... Everybody can't be a best friend with everybody. I know that. But we can be friendly to... We can be a neighbor to everybody, right? Think about it. God is bringing people to... There may be a reason God is bringing that person to us that we overlook. We never know what that person might have going on in their life and how they're going to need you, how they're going to need your Sunday school class, how they're going to need me, how they're going to need us this coming year. We don't know what they might be going through. And if they walk out of here and say, I don't know that they would care for me, we've lost an opportunity. Who's God brought to your Sunday school class? Who's God brought to your youth group? Who's God brought to the service? Who needs you? Who needs me? Who do we need to see? We need to break out of just our little circles of being super friendly with one another. And we need to reach out to that person who might be suffering deeply and desperately and they need us. 
I mention that not to scold you. Because again, I know your heart. If I knew your heart was not to be friendly and to overlook people, I, I would be scolding you. But I know your heart. You are the friendliest group of people around. But again, we're friends with one another. We need to have eyes to see others. Who's God calling you to see, to invest in, to build a relationship with? Because that person might end up being like that guy that was left for dead and they need somebody like you to be the good Samaritan who's going to come along. Now obviously a lot more than that, loving our neighbor as ourselves. But we've got to, we've got, it begins with seeing people that God brings to us. Help me that I never in 2017 have to go into another home and say, Pastor, I came to the church Sunday and nobody, nobody spoke to me. Take a chance. If you don't recognize some people told me they might be a member and I'd be embarrassed. Be embarrassed. Take a chance. Say, you know, I don't recognize you. You might have been a member here longer than I've been. But what's your name? I'm glad you're here. Take a chance. To love our neighbor as ourselves, too, it involves tangible deeds, doesn't it? Not just words, but getting involved in people's lives. Notice verse 40 in closing. Notice what verse 40 is saying, what it's not saying. He says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What it is not saying, it's not saying that all the other commandments are not needed. What it is saying is that all the other commandments grow out of these two. If I am loving God with all my heart and soul and mind, then all the commandments in the Word of God that have to do with the vertical relationship, guess what? I'll be doing those. If I'm loving my neighbor as myself, all the commandments in the Word of God that have to do with the horizontal, with one another, if I'm loving my neighbor as myself, then I'm going to be doing all those other commandments too. Jesus said, these two commandments right here, all the law and the prophets come out of these two. Now think about something else as we close. Think of the word megale. Megale. That's the Greek word used here. Teacher, what is the megale commandment in the law? Do you know what word we get from megale? What, what's, what's just a root word we get from that? Mega, big, great. And this law you're saying, teacher, what is, the, what is the megale commandment? What is the great commandment? What is the greatest commandment of all? Here's my question. Will your life and my life be about small things in 2017? Or will our lives be about big things, great things? The last thing I want on my tombstone one day is that he wasted his life on small things. Mega heart or small heart? Mega soul or small soul? Mega mind or small mind? Let's join with God in doing mega things this year. Amen.
And Father, may it be so. May our lives and our church be about mega things, great things, big things. Give us the wisdom and the power and the strength to do so. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please? Again, what I said earlier, if you need Christ, you can't love God with all your heart, mind, and soul if you don't know Christ. I want you to think about this. The scripture says you're at enmity with God. You're, you're at hostility. You're, you're in a position of being God's enemy if you don't know Christ. Because Christ is the one that makes it possible that we can be reconciled to the Father and go into His presence. Do you need to come to Christ this morning? That's where loving God begins. Perhaps the majority have already done that. What are you going to do with your heart, your soul, your mind in 2017 to grow in your love for God? What are you going to do? What steps are you going to take so that you can be about mega things when it comes to God? Is there some sin that you need God's help weeding that out of your life? Come to Him. Let Him direct you in that too.